ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is Sarah Dingle coming to you from Gadigal Land with our final late night live show for the week. Philip Adams will be back with you on Monday. But first, tonight we're going to head to Russia to test the saying, once a KGB agent, always a KGB agent. And of course, the most famous KGB agent of them all is Russian President Vladimir Putin. We'll hear what the KGB's past can tell us about the present administration and the war in Ukraine. And later, we'll be talking trees with a man who says they're so much more than just green stones. They learn, they communicate, and they have a pretty active social life. That's a bit later. As the war in Ukraine approaches its 16th month, the question of what Russian President Vladimir Putin might do next is as acute as ever. My next guest suggests that maybe the answer can be found in Putin's distant past when he was a student reading Cold War thrillers, watching Russian spy movies and dreaming of joining the KGB. That's one of the theories found in Mark Hollingsworth's new book, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies. It's a work which delves into Russia's long history of espionage and disinformation, exploring how the Soviet spy agency used covert operations to destabilise the UK, the US and NATO countries during the Cold War. But it also brings us right up to the present day, drawing parallels between KGB Cold War operations and disinformation campaigns waged by bots and trolls following the invasion of Ukraine. Mark Hollingsworth is an investigative journalist and author of 10 books, including London Grad, From Russia with Cash, The Inside Story of the Oligarchs. And he also writes regularly for The Times, The Spectator and The Guardian. I'm delighted he's joining us now from London. Mark, welcome to Late Night Live. Pleasure to be with you. First of all, Mark, can you give us a quick KGB primer, if there is indeed such a thing? Where did the KGB come from and how did it morph into its modern day uh, successor, the FSB? Well, originally, historically, the KGB was born out of the the 1917 Russian Revolution when Lenin uh, decided that he needed a secret police to ensure that the new Soviet communist regime would be preserved and secured. So he set up a secret police called the Cheka, which was incredibly brutal and authoritarian, which was basically set up to spy on what they called counter-revolutionaries, the white Russians who opposed the communist revolution in 1917. And that was his first secret police, which lasted into the 1920s and was used basically as an agency of repression. But... As time moved on into the 1930s, when Stalin took over, and particularly in the early days of the Cold War, uh, the Cheka and then different Russian intelligence agencies went through different names, but they became much more an agency about spying on the West, uh, spreading disinformation, uh, recruiting agents in um, Western countries in the United States. So by the time the Cold War started, in the late 1940s, it was a, it was more of an agency about um, COVID operations and espionage in the West. And the actual KGB was not actually constituted until 1954. But in, before then, it had different agency names. But by 1954, when the KGB was, was uh, launched, it had become a crucial uh, agency in the Cold War in terms of trying to destabilize uh, the West, Western Europe, and the United States uh, by disinformation, forgery of documents, honey trapping, recruiting of agents, um, and basically trying to destabilise the West. When Boris Yeltsin came to power, he ultimately broke up the KGB because it was too big, too much of a threat. Is that when 
the FSB was formed from the ashes of the KGB? Well, when Boris Yeltsin became president of Russia in 1991, he regarded the KGB as having too much power because it was like a, a state within a state. It answered really only to itself. It had no accountability. It only answered to the Communist Party during the Cold War. So he felt he needed to consolidate political power on the basis of him being elected in, in Russia in the early 90s and that there needs to be some kind of uh, parliamentary democratic institution where, and that the KGB needs to be reined back. So it was officially abolished and reconstituted as the FSB. And so it definitely lost a lot of its power, but it, the reality is that Russia in the 1990s still had a secret service. It still had an intelligence agency. It was called the FSB. And they still operated in the same way. They just didn't have as much power as the KGB did during the Cold War and as later the FSB did under Putin. So the 1990s, they weren't complete, they weren't abolished. They, I would argue they were just restructured, refocused. In your book, you actually argue that the history of the Russian secret police can be traced all the way back to Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great in well, the 15 and 1600s, that's quite a claim. Is that the existence of an agency within the state? Yes, I think if you look at the history of Russia, it's a history of authoritarianism and poverty and being invaded by Napoleon and then Hitler in the Second World War. And it's a, it's a history of insecurity. It's a, it's a, it's a huge country with amazing natural resources, but it's also a country that has been governed by dictators. And you can go that, as you say, you go back to Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great. So for them, uh, the the use of a secret police or a security service, even going back to the 16th century, was very important to stabilize the country and to make sure that there was no opposition and no dissidents. And that really has manifested itself really the whole history of Russia has, has been has been that that way and they regard the West as decadent and today you can as you can see from the evidence is that Russia's become even more authoritarian in terms of the suppression of free speech um, and opposition but that was it was certainly you can trace it back historically well coming back to the modern era of the KGB and then the FSB, Vladimir Putin once famously said, quote, there's no such thing as a former KGB man. And he was talking about someone else at the time, but Putin was a KGB officer himself from 1975 to 1991, a fairly low-ranking one, as you and others have noted. But how formative do you think that early stage of his career was? I think Putin's formative career in the KGB in the 70s and 80s was incredibly influential and formative, as you say, in that when the Cold War ended in 19, late 1989, uh, Putin was a KGB officer in Dresden and East Germany, and he could see firsthand the end of the uh, Warsaw Pact, the end of the, of the Soviet Union, and that was for him very humiliating in his own book, in his own words. He relates how he telephoned Moscow when there were literally protesters outside the KGB office where he was and asking for help, and Moscow was silent. And for him, uh, he's been quite open about this, uh, the, the decline of the Soviet Union, the old Soviet empire, was, was humiliating and a disaster for, for Putin. And so I think there's enough evidence to show that really ever since, I would say certainly from 2007 onwards, he's been planning to try and restore some version of the Soviet Union politically and certainly planning to invade Ukraine since 2014. And so that is always in his mind. I mean, if you look at his his philosophy politically, I mean, it's very much based on, on Russian uh, Orthodox philosophy and Soviet communist view of the world, which is that have to have a very strong state. He actually does except that you need to work in a capitalist free market economy. But uh, he also believes that the state has to play a really 
extraordinary um, uh, strategic role in the economy in terms of this still, obviously, the state plays a major role in the Russian economy. So I think Putin's career in the KGB is is really important to examine because it does tell you a lot about why he's in Ukraine and, and what he's doing now. Well, let's go from his KGB career to his uh, ascendancy to power. You start your book with Putin's involvement in the smearing of Russia's former prosecutor general, Yuri Skuratov. Um, and you say everything in that case had all the hallmarks of, you know, a, ca- a classic KGB play. Can you tell us the story? Well, when Yeltsin was president in the last sort of years of his presidency, um, 1999, Obviously, the issue was who was going to succeed him. And Putin at the time was prime minister. uh, And he had been head of, well, I think he was actually head of the FSB at at the time. And there was a prosecutor in the Russian law enforcement agency called Skuratov. And he was investigating corruption in the Yeltsin inner circle. And the 1990s was riddled with corruption in terms of the oligarchs ripping off the Russian state and, and and acquiring huge assets, but also in a the circle of Yeltsin were also corrupt. And so this corruption investigation was was uh, irritating Yeltsin. And so Putin basically decided that to ingratiate himself with, with Yeltsin, uh, they should do a honey trap operation against the prosecutor, against the guy who was investigating the Yeltsin corruption. And so they hired these girls, uh, almost certainly prostitutes or women who they could pay, to honey trap this guy Skuratov. And they did it in that classic KGB way. As I'm sure you know, um, the vanity of middle-aged men is is uh, infinite. And so the guy <laughs> fell for it. And they filmed them in, in a bedroom together. And then they, they had the, the video. And so uh, they then leaked the video to Russian TV station. And uh, that was broadcast to basically to smear and and get rid of this prosecutor. He didn't go uh, willingly. He disputed that he was even in the video, but it was a classic operation to destroy him. And eventually, Skuratov, the prosecutor, he had to um, resign. And the reason we know Putin was involved was that he was actually filmed taking a copy of the video to the Russian TV station for them to play it. And then Putin even held a press conference saying that this guy Skuratov um, should be investigated and it was a disgrace what he did and all the rest of it. And so the political consequence of that was very important because the investigator Skuratov was backing a political rival of Putin. And so if you destroyed a main ally of your political rival, that helped Putin a lot. And so Yeltsin then became more pro-Putin because Putin was investigating the guy who was investigating Yeltsin, if that makes sense. The enemy of my enemy. (laughs) Exactly. And so the consequence of all this is that Yeltsin then backed Putin to be his successor. And then Putin became president of Russia in early, late 1999, early 2000. But there's a strong case to be made that he really only became president of Russia because of a secret service honey trap operation against this guy Skuratov. And that's why it's so important. It is, just as an aside, it is remarkable how often honey trap tactics are used and work. (laughs) In your book, you describe, uh, you know, American uh, members of Congress being asked to have a look at themselves in the mirror and to see if a, a 10 out of 10 really would approach them of their own volition or not to basically check their head. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think um, even just if you take away the issue of how the KGB operated, because the CIA and Mossad, the Israeli security service, and I'm sure MI6, um, universally use honey trap operations because, you know, let's be honest about it, you know, the, the capacity of, of, of middle-aged men to be delusional about their own attractiveness to the female sex is infinite and universal. And uh, blokes uh, are pathetic in that sense that, that, you know, they could be like an overweight, balding, 60-year-old 
guy sitting in the bar of a hotel (laughs) in Moscow and then they get approached by a 21-year-old six-foot blonde knockout uh, who suddenly becomes interested in them. She's really into you. She's really, like, she, you know, she loves you for your mind. (laughs) Exactly. And your dynamic personality. And uh, so a lot of men, you know, the most, uh, there was a British ambassador called Jeffrey Harrison who in uh during the cold war he was the british ambassador to moscow and you know very intelligent incredibly sophisticated british establishment public school oxbridge foreign office and uh you know this he was only trapped by a housekeeper waitress she was she served meals at the british embassy in moscow and um they were warned he was warned the ambassador was warned you know they get a security briefing when you go to moscow and you're based at the British Embassy, say other countries are the same, the staff are nearly always KGB. And they know they're all KGB, but, um, you know, some of these men uh, fall for it. And it happened a lot with gay men, which was more serious during the Cold War, because for gay men to be honey-trapped was um, more serious because it was then a criminal offence to be gay. And so it was a very powerful weapon. And the Russians... You know, and the East German, most of the East European states during that, they actually had training centers to train female agents as honey trappers. But they also trained men who were male intelligence agents for men to honey trap women. And so it went both ways. But it was a very powerful weapon. And uh, as a a young lady yourself, you, you know about how pathetic men can be and how they can easily fall for these things. I'll take that as a comment. This is Sarah Dingle in the LNL chair for Philip Adams, and I'm talking to Mark Hollingsworth about his book, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies. So let's go to the Cold War. You write about an intelligence agency spiralling out of control, accountable to no one but itself, uh, intent on subverting Western politics on a near inconceivable scale. Tell me about the number of KGB agents in the UK and the US during the Cold War. Well, from the, I would say, early 50s through to the early 1970s, KGB agents uh, and spies in in London and in Washington, D.C. were probably almost double what MI5 in the UK and what the FBI in the US had at their disposal in terms of spying operations, which was largely spying and trying to get into the US Congress, uh, recruiting agents in America. They tried to recruit and influence American presidential candidates. Uh, in in, In the UK, they tried to recruit and influence British members of parliament. And so they devoted huge resources, I mean, hundreds of millions of, of pounds in the 1950s and 60s, which was a lot of money, to um, influence, uh, destabilize and damage NATO countries, the UK and the US. And they did it mainly by disinformation. They would forge vast numbers of documents and, and leak those documents uh, just to spread chaos and confusion and damage. Mm. Your book has, they, has and, an and, extensive list mm. of the forged documents and it's an appendix, which is is an eye-opening read in its own, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. I mean, that's just a small sample, really. I mean, there wasn't enough space in the, in the main text of the book to include all the forgeries. And their, their strategy was to forge vast numbers of documents and they would, they would fabricate, you know, even tape, uh, telephone conversations between Mrs. Thatcher and President Reagan, uh, and they would they would pull together public broadcasts and, and speeches by Reagan and Thatcher, and then they would re-edit them and make it look as though they were having a conversation, uh, and it was completely fake. And then they would leak that tape. But they 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 manufactured private letters between the U.S. Defense Secretary to whatever it was, and then they would leak those documents. What their, their, their strategy was they would fabricate like thousands of documents. They would know that 80% of the recipients, usually journalists, would, would understand that they were a hoax and they were crude fake. But there was always about 10%, maybe more, of the recipients of these fake documents who would uh, accept them as um, genuine. 
because it, it, it often uh, they it would fit their preconceived view of the world, of their preconceived conspiracy theories. So, for example, in Africa particularly, there were countries that were very anti the US, anti the West, pro the Soviet Union. And so if they received a document saying that CIA is going to take over your country, even if it's a fake document, it kind of told them what they wanted to hear. And so it was quite effective in that sense of, of destabilizing or building support for the Soviet Union in certain African countries by these fake documents. Was it was a major? That was one of their major weapons. Well, let's talk about from the original fake news to modern day. You say that disinformation and secret surveillance continue to play key roles in Russia's war with Ukraine. And you interviewed Valentin Nalivachenko, who who was head of the Ukrainian Secret Service between 2006 and 2010 for your book. What did he tell you about the way that the FSB was operating in the region in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine? So um, Mr. Nalivachenko was head of the Ukrainian Security Service on two occasions, and he was present and head of the service in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea and the Donetsk region. And what he discovered was that the Russian intelligence agency, the FSB, had penetrated the Ukrainian regime at that time and had had bribed and recruited uh, Ukrainians to join the FSB. And then they were able to then uh, steal uh, vast amounts of, of data within the Ukrainian government, and they were involved in in disinformation, spreading fake news, and again, fake documents. But by then, 2014, it was more about obtaining disks and um, and very confidential information within the Ukrainian government. And so it was the same policy, and I'm sure that's almost definitely happening now. I mean, the level of disinformation now in the Ukraine war is just phenomenal. And so he told me firsthand how they investigated what was going on. And it just showed that that the FSB were operating in the same way in 2014, and obviously now, as they did before. The only difference is the technology. So in the current situation is obviously using social media, bots, all the the new technological uh, weapons at their disposal. Um, but the same mindset of just fabricating, just just putting out conspiracy theories is the same as it was it was during the Cold War. What about the GRU or the GRU, whichever whichever one you want to call it, which is the Russian military intelligence agency, which is not to confuse everyone, but coexisted alongside the KGB and now the FSB also active in Donetsk um, in 2014. What do we know about their activities? Well, the GRU, which is the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency, it's, it's in a sense, it is the successor to the old KGB. It's a bit complicated because the whole thing was restructured. But the GRU mainly has been involved in more uh, assassinations, and we've seen and and getting involved in trying to murder and poison political dissidents like um, Navalny, or historically Litvinenko in the UK, and there's been obviously Skripal in the UK. There's been a whole series of uh, assassinations or attempted murders against uh, perceived enemies of Russia. And so the GRU, which is the sort of more foreign military intelligence agency, that's more their operations. And so they are, they're basically the foreign intelligence uh, operatives uh, for the Russian state. I had a, a bit of a, a light bulb moment, I suppose, um, when I was reading through, because it seemed that from the point of view of you know, KGB operatives, war, any kind of outright conflict was simply an extension of what had already been happening. Um, so there, there is always war, in other words, permanent war. Sometimes it's a conflict and sometimes it's something uh, a bit more subtle. Do you see that as what has ultimately led to the 2014 annexation and the 
invasion of Ukraine. Are Putin's brutal tactics in Ukraine just following this KGB mindset? Yes, definitely. Um, Putin really doesn't see any difference between a war situation and peace. And um, he basically thinks that that politics is just a perpetual uh, struggle, a perpetual conflict. So, for example, um, the famous Chinese military historian San Su is a major source of influence for uh, Russian uh, military operations. When he argued, as an ancient Chinese philosopher and military historian, he argued that war is about deception. And it's about um, using deception and influence and disinformation. And that was much more important than actually having troops on the ground. And um, Putin believes, and his generals believe that you know that that the Western view that that history is about periods of of peace and periods of war for Putin, life almost is a perpetual war, perpetual conflict, and that never stops. And so um, their influences uh, on their thinking were people like uh, this Chinese historian, very famous, he wrote The Art of War, and then a, a general from the 19th century called General von Clausewitz, who said, war is the continuation of politics by other means. So their mindset is really that this is just another phase in the war against the West. and after Putin became president in 2000, there was a period of a relative stability until about 2007. And then he made a famous speech in Munich, which was attacking the US, which was pretty much the revival of the Cold War. And so I think the philosophical influences on Putin uh, against the West is is quite an important uh, source of understanding the reason for this war, because I like a lot of people are thinking, well, why the hell is he invading Ukraine? And I think it's, I think the, his motivation, it's not just megalomania. I think there's a, there's a whole underlying uh, philosophy there. So in that case, you said Putin made that speech in 2007, which revived the Cold War. Have we been in a Cold War ever since, which has turned hot in the case of Ukraine? Well, in 2006-2007, I uh, can't remember the exact date, was the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, who was a former FSB officer and moved to London, and he was a critic of Vladimir Putin and his regime. And as we all know, uh, he was assassinated on the streets of London, poisoned in a London hotel. Um, and the evidence shows clearly that this was done at the, be at the behest of the Russian state. And then we had the invasion of Crimea in 2014. I think it's been, an, it's been a series of, of incidents, a series of issues leading up to this, and I can't prove it, and I have no inside knowledge, but I suspect he's been, Putin has been planning and thinking about invading Ukraine for some time. But, you know, the big concern is that if he succeeds and he, he does annex Ukraine, is you know, Moldova will be next, and then it we're going back to the old Cold War. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us tonight. Uh, my pleasure. Mark Hollingsworth is an investigative journalist and author. His new book, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies, is published by One World. This is Sarah Dingle on Late Night Live, keeping the seat warm for Philip Adams before he returns on Monday. Coming up, the hidden lives and secret superpowers of trees. These days, it seems like we all spend a lot of time reading, listening and thinking about the climate crisis. And everywhere you look, people usually describe the problem as one of inaction. Politicians being slow to act, industry being slow to adapt and individuals left wondering what they can do to stop the planet getting warmer. Well, German forester Peter Vorleben isn't unrealistic about the scale of the challenges we're facing, but he does suggest there's one really simple solution which has been overlooked, and that's standing back and letting trees do their thing. 
You might remember Peter from his best-selling book, The Hidden Life of Trees, which opened our eyes to the remarkably rich social lives of our friends with foliage. Peter manages an ecologically conscious forest in Germany and runs a forest academy for education and advocacy. His latest book is titled The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. Peter, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. First of all, we tend to think of trees as solitary things, but um, they have a really cranking social life, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> they have, because a single tree knows I'm not a forest. Just as a forest, they're able to do a lot of crazy or really cool things. For example, cool down the local atmosphere around about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius in summertime. That's an average number. So, they are really cool. And trees can also learn and adapt, and we can already see this happening as the climate warms. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. For example, um, the book I describe, an old chestnut horse chestnut tree, and this tree did mistakes. Um, it made mistakes. Uh, for example, it dropped its leaves too early off, and then realized, obviously, that it didn't save enough sugar in its cells for winter. So it came again in autumn out with new leaves, which is very risky because they can freeze. And uh, But it survived wintertime. And from this year on, it kept the leaves longer. So you can watch trees learning. And that's really interesting because... This is not just like, you know, adaptation that happens over decades. This is remarkably quick from season to season. Is that right? Yeah, even faster from week to week. Um, exactly as you described, we thought it, the change would be only possible through evolution over hundreds of years. Now we see, no, a tree can learn within weeks. And more amazing, that it's not just about the tree. A tree, for example, supports bacteria, fungi in the soil, which form together the tree and the forest. It's not about this tree species. And uh, together they adapt to climate change. For example, fungi is changing its chemistry and therefore reaches more water in the ground. Or the bacteria are fighting foreign, non-native fungi species, which are attacking trees. So they all work together to adapt and to be more resilient. And you highlight research um, coming in from Australia, actually, on, of all things, peas. Um, we will go back to trees in a second, but first of all, peas. This work suggests that plants are capable of really complex learning as well. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's about, uh, I think, about the Pavlov reflex, that you can peas train like dogs, for oh, example. Wow. That's just really, really crazy. For example, a dog, if you if you ring a bell while feeding it and do this for several weeks, then after a time, just ringing the bell would cause the flow of saliva. And you can do a similar experiment on peas. If you bring them in a dark room and push them with a little bit air, in the dark room, and then bring the light from exactly the same direction. Then after some weeks, it's just the air which brings the leaves into this direction. So the peas learn that the push of air will bring light, and that means food, of course. So uh, we very often thought that, that we have a sharp border between animals and plants, and nature shows us more and more that it isn't so. Wow. Okay. So going back to trees, to the rather larger relatives of peas and other vines we have in the garden, um, can you give us an overview of how trees normally respond to the changing seasons, something we all learn as children, but worth a reminder, and why they do that? Yeah, uh, trees, for example, when it comes to, to the weather, to the local climate, they have to store water in the ground. And that's one of the reasons why deciduous trees in our region drop off the leaves in autumn so the soil can better collect water because otherwise most of the water will remain in the crowns of the trees uh, and that's useless for trees. So uh, they drop off the leaves, the soil can be soaked up with water and that's a new um, study uh, made that our trees here need mostly winter rain. Even if the summer will be very dry, doesn't matter for the trees because they use winter rain as long as you don't disturb the ground. For it. This is just one example how trees react. So, and as well as using winter rain, trees also store reserves of food, don't they? Like your hibernating squirrel or what have you. 
Exactly. Or like bears, which catch salmon and to have a thick fat layer under the skin. And trees store sugar molecules in their roots and in their bark. And what's fascinating me even more is that when it comes to hunger, the trees can even lose body weight. It's so, so uh, <laughs> that, that's relatively new that they, they can use their own body mass to create energy, not just the sugar stored in their cells. So they are just a little bit behaving like we, but it's just in a range of some millimeters. It's not, not that much. Wow. So all of that is pretty incredible. But now we throw global warming into the mix. How is global warming starting to upset these patterns? And what are the trees doing in response? Yeah, uh, trees don't, luckily, don't like the same things we don't like. For example, when it's got warmer, when it's got drier, trees don't like this because they need water, they need moist um, ecosystem, very wet ecosystem. And plants know since 500 million years that they can't move away where they grow. So that's a difference, a big difference to us. We move away when conditions are changing and plants know they can't move, so they are changing them back. And we see this on trees, for example. Trees can cool the local atmosphere in summer times in average about 10 to 15 degrees down. So that means they make it colder and the trees can create rain clouds. They, big forests can create low depression areas and so you have more clouds and uh, at the same time while trees are evaporating water molecules, they also release every big tree per second around about 200,000 bacteria and they are also rising up together with the water molecules into the clouds creating ice crystals and therefore more raindrops so trees are creating their own rain if you just joined us it's sarah dingle here standing in for philip adams and my guest is the best-selling author and forester peter volleben peter trees are controlling their climates their own microclimates if we let them. What are some of the other ways that trees behave as a community and look after one another? Because trees <clears throat> create all this local weather phenomena and knows that they have to be in big communities, they support each other. For example, they support through the root system each other with sugar. So if there are weak trees, they get help, support from the neighboring trees, which are a little bit tougher, for example. They warn each other uh, from insect attacks. They even communicate with animals. For example, we have latest research here in Germany, uh, University of Leipzig, uh, that oak trees are calling birds for help by chemical substances, chemical signals. And then the bird knows, ah, there is a caterpillar invasion on this oak. And uh, then they come to uh, feed, to, to eat all these caterpillars, and the oak gets rid of them. So there's a lot of communication, interaction, and help. And even uh, with a new fungi uh, disease that we got here in from Japan, uh, it attacks ash trees on the whole northern hemisphere of the world. And meanwhile, a single bacteria species, one, one of those hundreds of thousands bacteria species working together with trees, one of them changed its chemistry and is now fighting this foreign fungi. It changed its own chemistry. It's changed it and is now fighting the fungi because uh, this, this bacteria, let's say, know that they need the ash sugar released by the roots and they register if the tree is weak and so they start to help it. Wow, that's incredible. It, it seems like there's still so much that we may not know about trees particularly goes on what happens underground, beneath the forest floor. Is that how you feel after all these decades of, of studying and thinking about trees? Yeah, it's, it's like just scratching the surface. We get so many new studies, tons of studies nearly every week uh, and, and see, wow, we have so much uh, underestimated the abilities of trees just because we thought that we're, let's say, not very much more than green stones. And uh, meanwhile, we see, no, they are not humans. They are not people, of course, and they are not animals. They have different strategies, but uh, they reach the same goals with their own strategies. And uh, meanwhile, uh, modern scientists, for example, from the University of Bonn, says that plants and trees are even intelligent. 
So what implications does it have for forestry then if we stop thinking about trees as green stones uh, and we start thinking about them as intelligent, cooperative ecosystems? Yeah, that first, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use timber anymore. I love wooden things. That's really great. For example, I'm here sitting now at my wooden desk, but uh, it means that we should be more careful because we haven't understand let's say more than 10% of a forest and think we can make forests. Many people think, um, even foresters, that we can create forests and that's not true. We can create plantations and that's a little bit like battery farming uh, with trees. So uh, if we want to have resilient forests and forests are much more valuable ju uh, just, uh, as just a timber source, they are valuable for water. Water is, or is, is the most necessary thing when it comes to food. It's uh, they are, yeah. For the local climate, so important. For altogether all these benefits, we need resilient forests. And because we haven't understood how this really works, we should do them their job on their own. And what we also need, we need old trees. And forest trees were often cut very young at the age of, let's say, 50 or 100 years. But we know that 1% of the oldest trees contain 50% of the biomass. That means that they are the main carbon storages. They have the most knowledge. Tree, old trees are like libraries, and they are able to pass down their knowledge to their seedlings. There is a research uh, being done with collecting the gas flow over such young forests. And it means for the minimum first decade in even much, much more, these young forests are releasing more uh, carbon than they uh, store. So that means um, by cutting older trees, planting new ones, you make it at minimum for the next decades, decades worse than now. So and what are we talking about? We are talking about, let's say, the next two or three decades uh, where we have to turn, make the turn to a better direction. So uh, it's always not a good idea to make forests younger. That's what they tell. They, it, it sounds so lovely. Everyone wants to be younger. Uh, we, we see the beauty industry or whatsoever. And to make forests younger seems so nice. But in reality, that means to weaken them, forests lose information, forests lose abilities, uh, and, and so on. So it's always good to work together with, with older trees. So we need old trees for many, many purposes. And when it's now coming to forestry, we should stop clear-cutting. We should stop introducing non-native tree species. We should uh, instead let natural uh, or native forest ecosystems come back and to grow old. There's so much that I want to unpack there. Um, but first of all, you said that we, we have been thinking that we can create forests and we can't. We can only make plantations. I mean, we've been thinking that we can make forests for centuries. This isn't just something we've come up in the last couple of decades. Have you received a lot of pushback about... Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, from, from forest industry and timber business. Tell me but about I'm it. On their, I'm on their side. In Germany, for example, in the German forest uh, system, you have also in Australia, it is in India, it's in British Columbia, because the British... Uh, took always German foresters with them. So we have the same system all over the world, meanwhile. And what we see here in Germany, where it comes from, we will lose 50% of the forest coverage within the next 10 years because we will lose all those plantations. And now I think now it's time to say, okay, if we want to use timber uh, anymore, if we want to have wonderful wooden things, we need forest. And uh, the more strange things we make with, with the climate and, and the environment, the, the more biomass the forest needs for itself to, because trees don't produce timber for us, they, 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 that are their bones, and uh, that's the biomass for the forest. So again, I'm on the side of foresters and the timber business, uh, because they have to answer the question, where should the timber come from when all those plantations will die? All right. So... Where should it come from? Assuming we can, we can from? stop yeah. this kind of plantation mentality, where are we going to get the wood that we need? Uh, I think we can get it from near native forests. Uh, a forest where you uh, thin, where you cut trees is, of course, not longer a native forest, but a near native forest. That means managed very carefully. A forest which has more biomass and more older trees is much more productive. You get more timber from those forests and they withstand the actual climate change much better. So that means if you want to harvest in the future timber, you need to let 
trees do the job on their own. And we see it here in Germany, we see it worldwide. I've never seen any artificial forest, any plantation, which makes the job better than a native forest. So let's go back to the roots um, in every sense and then uh, harvest much more carefully timber. You also, um, this is going to get even more controversial. I don't know if you're on Twitter. Maybe you should think about getting off Twitter if so. But um, you think that wood should be treated like other sources of fuel and subjected to a carbon tax. How, how would that work? Yeah, uh, because um, burning timber is worse for the climate than burning oil or gas. And uh, beside the forest and timber business, most scientists agree with this. And uh, it's just about carbon. And it's not regarded what trees are doing in cooling down the atmosphere, creating rain clouds and all this. So using trees as a fuel source, I think it's the worst idea ever. And it comes from the fairy tale that it is carbon neutral because trees are growing afterwards on the same place and take up the CO2, which was released by burning. But this is not true. Trees can become very, very old, many, many centuries. And if you now cut trees in a young age, you stop this collecting of uh, CO2. And that means the, the best thing for climate is let trees be in the forest, use heat pumps, for example, uh, solar power, wind power. That's much, much better. And I've uh, read with pleasure that uh, some Australian states are now turning over to renewable energy, producing green gas for exports and so on. So it's, it's now a switching industry, which goes in a much better direction than just uh, producing timber as a fuel source. Let's talk uh, solutions on an individual level so that um, people can leave with some ideas as well as some, <laughs> some worries. You say there are things that we as individuals can do, and one is just planting a single tree in our own front yard. What does one single tree do? Exactly. Many people think, oh, one tree, oh, come on, that's what should that be? Uh, no, you can make a test. Sit on a very hot summer day under an umbrella and then change to in the shadow of an old tree. And then you realize it's a little bit colder there. Uh, it's one to two degrees, but that makes a difference. And if you have space for two or three trees or in the city, in the whole street, it makes a big difference. In a city, for example, like Melbourne or Sydney, if you have a street with trees and a street without trees, the difference is around about 20 degrees, 20 degrees. So that's a big difference uh, for our health, to, for well-being. So and that are very little steps. And you're completely right. Every tree counts. So then, what sort of trees should we be planting? Uh, I'm not very in the native trees of Australia, but take the local native trees, because a tree is not just a tree. A tree is like a planet. Our body, for example, consists of thousands of bacteria species, and we are not just homo sapiens. We are many, many species together. And on trees, it's exactly the same. Uh, take Local native trees, because they are, are the best to work with the local bacteria, fungi, uh, insect ecosystems, and uh, they are much more resilient than wonderful flowering non-native trees, which may, in the preceding climate change, one day um, die. You also warn us that, I mean, that's our own backyards, but uh, when we look further afield, um, sometimes, you know, the things we buy say that for every whatever you've just bought, a tree is planted somewhere else. But you <laughs> warn us that not all tree planting initiatives are created equal. What should we be worried about in this case? Uh, we should be worried uh, in, um, if this plant actions uh, are made by forest business. For example, um, you plant the next plantation, which will end up in a sawmill. It's okay to do so, but most people think, ah, we are planting uh, something for nature. And so ask, what will be afterwards with this forest? Is it a gift to nature? Will it be left on its own? Or will it be uh, after 10, 20, 50 years clear cut and the story starts again? So, uh, in many, many cases that are plantation, often with non-native tree species, it's like, as I said, battery farming with trees and nothing worth for, for nature. So um, it's always good to take a closer look uh, if it is really an environmental friendly um, thing. 
So you say that we need to show more humility when we're thinking about and planning for the future. As far as I know, the trees aren't going to get offended and stomp off. So why do we need to be more humble? Um, I think because we don't know uh, very much about nature. Uh, For example, we know just estimated 10% of all species on Earth, and we think we can manage everything. And what we have done so far brought us where we are now. So it, it, it means to accept that we are still part of nature, uh, that we are not able to live without nature. We don't have to give nature a certain space or protected areas or whatsoever, and there it is, and we are here. No, we are still in, and we should realize that we are depending on nature, that we are still part of it, and that we should treat it with more respect. And then we get more uh, yeah, more uh, safeness for ourselves, a better future. Yeah, but the first step is to realize that we don't know everything and that we have managed too much. Peter Vorleben, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Sarah. Peter Vorleben is a German forester and the best-selling author of The Hidden Life of Trees. His new book, which we've been discussing, is The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. Translated by Jane Billinghurst and published in Australia by Black Ink Books. Perhaps you should seek it out on ebook or audiobook if you can. We didn't really discuss the whole paper versus audiobook <laughs> <laughs> dilemma. <laughs> in one word, Peter, which, which version should people go for? I would prefer, it sounds strange, I would prefer the paper version. Um, <laughs> if, we stop, if we stop burning timber, for long-lasting uh, timber wooden products, we need just 15% of the timber harvest so we can reduce massively timber use and read um, paper books. Because with paper books, there are very good studies, scientific studies uh, concerning this, you get the knowledge better in your brain and your heart. And that's very important. All right, you've been told. Go forth. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> That's it for the week and for my fortnight keeping the chair warm here at LNL. My name's Sarah Dingle. It's been a real pleasure to have your company. Philip Adams will be back from next week. My thanks to the team here acting EP Taryn Priadko, Anne Arnold, Catherine Zengera, Jack Schmidt, and Julie Street. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.